I'm going to pray again, just so that I'm uh, totally prayed over. Cool. Um, Father, thanks again for um, the sweet words that we sang, and how cool it is that we get to praise you and adore you with our whole lives. Um, and Lord, we pray that we'd be able to do that the rest of this week um, in, our, in our working life as well, and as we kind of talk about that today, that you would be magnified and that your Holy Spirit would be leading us each to um, an application that um, your scripture makes clear towards um, that end. In the name I pray. Amen. All right. So, one of my dream jobs growing up, alongside being a professional soccer player turned, turned professional soccer coach and uh, international gospel worker, was to be a doctor. Um, I was so excited to make a difference and contribute to the world. And when I was entering college at the University of Northern Colorado here, um, I had my sights set on the medical field. Um, Here are the reasons that I chose medicine. Um, One, it would pay great. Uh, Two, it would prove how smart I am. Three, um, I would have a lot of freedom and flexibility. And that second point was supposed to be a a joke, by the way. (laughs) And four, I would be solving real problems or helping people with real issues and loving others in a tangible way. Or I guess you could say really achieving something with my life that was worthwhile. Today, alas, I'm no longer pursuing the medical field. And um, not because it's a bad choice to pursue medicine or because um, I didn't want to necessarily, but because my motivations and identity were in that and they were totally misaligned um, and through a set of decisions I, I said you know what Lord I'm because of this misalignment I'm not going to go down this path at least for the time being and so today we're going to look at the relationship between slave and master or more broadly man and his work under the sun um, so if you guys would stand with me as we read from the passage that we're studying today, Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. We'll see if we can get it up there. If not, we all do have Bibles in front of us, which can also work. Cool. All right, so read with me. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God. So these past two weeks, we've studied two other relationships. Um, And those, if you remember, were the relationship between husband and wife and the relationship between child and father um, or parents. And we studied how Christ changes our hearts or gives us a new orientation to pursue these relationships in a holy way. And both of these previously discussed relationships are common spaces where power is abused. 
Um, and the relationship of master and slave today is certainly no exception. Um, and more than likely, so to start off today's message, I just want to dive into two topics of slavery and work um, to give us kind of a context for what we're talking about. Because in that passage we just read, in the ESV, it talks about, it uses the word bondservants, which in the Greek is doulos, but in other translations, it's translated as slave. Um, and so why does, why does Paul even mention slavery without condemning it? Um, well, more than like, because more than likely, the example of slavery we in this room are most common with is the transatlantic slave trade that began during Europe's ex- exploration of the Americas and has continued to cause fractures in America and American society since. Um, although during the writing of this letter in the Roman Empire, slavery was usually not race-based, um, but were captives of Roman military advancement. Um, and a fact I found interesting is that more than 50% of the members of Roman society were slaves at any given time. Slavery was seldom lifelong, though, and the relationship was more similar to a modern-day employer-employee relationship than modern-day slave trafficking. Um, And yes, I I did say modern-day slave trafficking because, um, in fact, since the 17th, 18th, 19th century, um, slavery hasn't diminished in our world. And um, there are many people in in our world. In fact, uh, the UN puts the number estimated that over 40 million people are subjects to to slavery today. Um, And so while we are going to primarily look at this text in terms of how it relates to an employer-employee relationship, um, I believe we can also be aware that this text applies to people in those situations as well. Um, because throughout Scripture and today's passage, God affirms all pe- that all people are made in the image of God and that man's sinful acts that damage others are wrong. God looks at the heart of a man, not his disp- disposition or his occupation. Whether slave or master... God shows no partiality. So the biblical foundation for work um, begins all the way before even the fall of man. In Genesis 2, verse 15, the Bible says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Here, man is commissioned to work the garden and to keep it. And in that commission, we see that work is purposeful, work is beautiful, and work was joyful. Um, In fact, from... The nothingness that God, before the creation, God worked to create a world and everything in it. um, And he said that it was good. And we as image bearers of God follow his pattern of work, um, making beautiful things. The fall of man, of course, has corrupted even this most basic tenet of our humanity. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, says Genesis 3.15. There will be toil in our work and due to our sinful nature in our hearts as well towards the work and towards each other. And we will shortly explore this. Um, But what I want to propose to us today is that now secure by the work of Christ, we are freed to not work for ourselves, but for his name's sake. Um, And to understand our, our relationship to work properly, we must first understand our motivations. What are our humanly motivations? What are the motivations that Christ 
says you can actually, you can actually pursue these instead. Uh, so chapter 3 of Colossians, in verse 22, it says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So here, Paul and Timothy list people-pleasing as the main culprit for improper motivation. We are to obey, fearing the Lord and not fearing men. Yet, we so often fear men, right? People-pleasing is basically the same as fearing men. It's saying that this person's opinion of me is uh, more valuable than my God's opinion of me. We work to impress the boss, or in other words, we work to impress those around us. Um, Our motivation is primarily our relationship to this earth, its resources, and life, and the rest of life here, not the eternal realities. Our motivation so often is to better ourselves. Ecclesiastes is um, one of my personal favorite books. I think I just relate to it really well, Um, but it lists a few other ways we tend to be motivated in our work. Um, one, we work to achieve something great in our lifetime. As a part of, for example, as a part of a budding new industry, you want to make your mark on the world. There is constantly more to be achieved, another mountain to climb, whether it's you know, to be on Forbes 30 under 30 list, if you're really that fantastic, or just to be employee of the week, um, or you know, whatever other achievement comes to mind. Um, but as Solomon makes clear in, in Ecclesiastes, every building will fall down. Every record will be broken. Every title that you have will be given to another. So how is this um, a motivation that is, that is worth pursuing? Ecclesiastes says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. No matter what work we pursue, um, it will never be enough. We can never actually achieve perfection. Another motivation might be pleasure. If I can... So this is a personal example. If I can work extra hard this week, I can make enough time to spend Friday watching the World Cup matches. Um, or on the, other, on the contrary, I'm going to skimp on this project so that I can watch the World Cup matches. Um, and in either situation, I'm finding p- pleasure in something outside of my work, but simultaneously cutting back on my work, um, which is um, disobedient in, in the text that we've read, so that I can pursue my pleasure. Or, another example of pleasure, I'm finding pleasure in the work itself, spending extra hours because I'm passionate about what I do. Um, And again, this is is just me. This is me. I work extra hours just because I love what I do. Um, I love the feeling of a job well done. Nothing wrong with that, right? Well, now that I have this beautiful rose garden out back to show for it, um, I could explain, for example, my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil, as Solomon does in Ecclesiastes 2.10. Yet, in the very next verse, what does Solomon say? Again, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. For the work that I've accomplished uh, and the pleasure that I've had will go away just like everything else under the sun. Another motivation for working is wisdom, Um, and it can be just as damaging. In order to be smarter or wiser than others, you study um, every, every last bit of wisdom that's out there and you create, um, you create the opportunity to become wiser in this area or that area and you volunteer for every project at work because um, this is who you are. You're like, I, 
I'm the smartest, I'm the wisest, so this should be my job. Um, to this, Solomon says, the wise die just like fools. Ecclesiastes 1.16 says, uh, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil, toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Ecclesiastes 2.21. And so, again, Solomon finds even in wisdom. And this, by the way, this is the man who God calls to be the wisest man that's ever lived. Uh, because when Solomon, yeah, God gave him the ability to be the wisest man that's ever lived, and yet he says even wisdom um, is not to be gained under the sun. Lastly, wealth is motivating. I want a nicer house and a nicer neighborhood and a nicer car. I should take this overtime so that we can afford a trip to Europe this year. Yet all the wealth in the world will be passed on to another when you die. And Solomon, again, finds even in, um, even in this, there is nothing to be gained. A famous billionaire that I can't remember the, the name of um, <laughs> once was asked, how much is enough? Uh, to which he replied, just one dollar more. So this is Solomon's take on motivation. There is no amount of gain from this earth that can be had that will satisfy us. Uh, no, amount of, no amount of achievement, no amount of pleasure or wisdom or wealth can be enough. Um, our souls and our hearts are longing for more than what we can achieve in our day-to-day working pattern. So yes, God has created work, and he has created this pattern of doing and making and creating. Uh, but there's a longing inside of us for something more. And Jesus says the same thing in the, in the parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, now what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus further commends us in Matthew 6, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. So what motivates you? What is your treasure? What are the things that you work so hard for and treasure so much that you're willing to give your time, willing to give your energy towards them. Is it, is it pleasure? Is it wisdom? Um, all these things lead to, to a dissatisfaction. Um, so this is, why, this is why our motivations matter, because our hearts and our lives are eternal significance. And what Jesus says in this scripture is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we treasure these things, if these are our motivations, that's where our heart will be. But if our heart is of eternal significance, yet these motivations merit eternal insignificance and consequently leave the one in pursuit empty-handed and dissatisfied, then why would we put our motivation and our heart in a place of such eternal insignificance. There is a temporal reality that we live in, uh, but there is an eternal truth and reality that we must pursue. 
Um, and since we are now secure by the work of Christ, we are free, again, to not work for ourselves, but for his name's sake. Uh, and, and furthermore, this dissatisfaction leads us to mis- misdiagnosing our problems as we can't get over our own motivations. And as such, we are compelled to, one, overwork or underwork, to go harder after these treasures or to give up completely. Some examples might be like a missionary who burns out. He says, you know, I want to give my whole life for the sake of the cross. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to do this crazy thing. Um, but he finds in himself no motivation any longer because what he was pursuing was um, it didn't satisfy him. And I use that example in particular because you are not holy because of your occupation. Um, we are holy because of Christ. And I, I pray that as we move through this text um, that we'll, we'll see that more and more. And um, yeah, and so if you're thinking that you know, oh, I'm the guy that's I'm the guy that's burned out, or um, I'm the guy that I do overwork, or yeah, I do underwork because I. You're right. Work is meaningless. Uh, so why should I work hard? Uh, you're not alone because I've been on both ends of those spectrums, and I think I've been on both ends of those of that spectrum like probably every week of my life. Um, I think maybe I'm just a fickle person or something. I'm not sure, but um, if you go back to that story that I told at the beginning. As I was pursuing the medical field, all these pleasures and all these things, this, this is what I was pursuing. Um, but it doesn't mean because I've switched occupations that my person has changed. Because my heart is still in need of change no matter what occupation I have. Uh, and God says there is a better way. There, so there is now a reason to obey our masters in all things. Um, but in order to have a right understanding of work, as I've said, we must have renewed motivations. Um, but how do our motivations get renewed? In order to have right and renewed motivations, we must know our true identity. Um, again, this is our second point, but I don't have slides. In, uh, in order to have right motivations, we must know our true identity. So returning to our text in Colossians this morning, verse 23 through 24 read, Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Years ago when I would read this passage, I was so confused as I thought it was telling me to work heartily so that I will receive my reward. And I was completely missing the beauty of what this passage is actually saying about our identities. Um, So read this again with me and ask this question. What do bondservants receive and from whom? Again, what do bondservants receive, and from whom do they receive it? So, I'll read it again. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Okay, so this is incredible, because uh, this tells us two things. Number one, bondservants haven't given an inheritance. And number two, God is the giver of that inheritance. So let's start with the first point. Bond servants have been given, given an inheritance. This is unnatural. Anyone reading this letter back in that time would know that a slave does not receive an inheritance because they are not a part of the family. Remember, early in chapter 3, though, Paul and Timothy proclaimed something radical. Here, in the church, or as children of God, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. 
but Christ is all and in all. So when we are adopted into the family of God, we are no longer slaves, but we are children of God. And as children of God, co-heirs with Christ to his inheritance. Uh, And this is incredible because also, um, traditionally, inheritance is not just given to children of God, but it's given to the firstborn. Uh, And so the inheritance is most importantly um, known not by who receives the inheritance, but who, uh, who gives the inheritance. And so 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Um, so again, don't mistake this passage for saying that bond servants must work for their inheritance because this is, what, this is what I was so confused about because I always have thought that work leads to results. Um, but the gospel is, is contrary to that. The gospel says that um, because of God's work, you have access to this inheritance. Because of what God has done for you, um, you are freely given all things. The quality of the inheritance also is attached to the labor of the one who gives it away, not to the labor of the one who receives it. Um, So we can labor all we want um, and receive nothing. And yet, we labor for nothing, and God gives us everything. Because the, the one who's giving us this inheritance is the same God who is omnipotent, um, all-knowing, and has unlimited resources, and chooses to bless us with his inheritance. But if we forget this identity, if we forget who we are and whose we are, it will affect everything. For example, David was king over the entire nation of Israel. Uh, I would say master over Israel. Traditionally, when reading this story um, that, I'm about, that I'm about to talk about, we focus on the sin of commission. But today, we will ask, what was the sin of omission? What did David do? What did David not do that God had tasked him with? So David goes out on the deck of his castle, um, you know, this beautiful mansion, and he sees Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop, and David is reckless. His heart unchecked certainly because all of his mighty men, his most trusted friends, are on the battlefield while he is not. Uh, He acts out on his desire for pleasure and invites Bathsheba to lay with him. And when she is found pregnant, he sends her husband, Uriah, who is one of his mighty men, a close advocate and friend, to the front line to ensure his speedy demise. Um, But here's the kicker. Uriah is actually called home before, before... David sends him out to the battlefield, and David gives him a chance to, to sleep with his wife. Um, and David is, in this moment, being convicted of his sin and yet still refuses to admit his wrong. Um, and Colossians reads in the end of chapter 3 in verse 4-1, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, what, so from what we read earlier in chapter 3, that there is, there is no partiality before God. Master, slave, whatever occupation you hold, whatever position you have, 
um, God treats you the same. David, as master over the land, is not above the law and is, in fact, um, supposed to mirror the justice and fairness of his master in heaven. Instead, David has abused his power as master to send all of the men to battle besides himself uh, and lets these, lets these unholy, um, fleshly motivations rise up in him. And he takes advantage of this, this woman in his city. And then not only that, but then he covers up the mess that he made and takes no responsibility for his actions. Maybe this sounds familiar to you from um, stories in your own life. And it sounds familiar to me from what this, this kind of epidemic that um, has recently been occurring in the United States of this like this hashtag Me Too movement. And it just like blew my mind that, you know, God is concerned with the sin, not just of slaves, but of masters as well. Um, yeah. But David forgets who he was and who his master is. And to be, tru- to be truthful, this isn't any big news to us as believers that we are sinners and messed up, but it is big news to the world. The world says that you, know, you have the capacity to do good. You, you are good enough. Um, but we know that inside of our hearts, we are desperately wicked. And we and David are, are all screw-ups. God's worthiness and our, and our unworthiness are worlds apart because of the separation we've created, because of the wrong that we've done. Romans 3 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And I should put in here, you know, our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on our lips. Our our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark our way. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before our eyes. So this, this is the status of humanity when we, you know, all the way from the beginning when uh, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, we have set a pattern of rebellion. And yet the king who has served us sets us free and sets us free to serve him. In Philippians 2, we see just how the one who was David's master and the one who is master of the universe and master over us becomes servant to all. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a, on a cross. Um, so here we have the Jesus that we just spoke about, the one who is, you know, he's firstborn, uh, he's the firstborn son of God. He's, he's the alpha and the omega. He's why things, he's why everything was created. Everything was created by him and everything was created for him. And yet here we have him choosing um, on purpose to leave his position of authority to serve. Uh, and not just serve, not just, he does certainly wash the feet of his disciples, um, but then after washing the feet of his disciples, he goes and lays down his life for them. And he lays down his life for us. I mean, in doing so, 
he makes a way for us to be um, with him again. And in that, we are free from the identity our old masters placed on us. Um, because sort of hidden in this, in this text, um, something that is not explicitly stated, is that our old masters are, are our sin. Um, and so while there is this earthly reality of, yes, this guy is my boss and I am his employee, um, before Christ, we were slaves to sin. Um, before, before being freed by him, we are slaves to these motivations of pleasure and, um, and wealth and all these other things that drive us to do the things that we do, drive us to either overwork or to underwork, um, drive us to sometimes do crazy things like fly halfway across the world so that I look holier in front of other people. Um, whatever it is, these things we do out of sinful nature. Um, but if we backtrack to what was earlier said, you know, we are free from that identity that our old masters put on us. We don't have to live for these things anymore. We aren't subject to these things because in earlier in chapter 3, Paul and Timothy say that, uh, therefore, as you have been seated above in heavenly places with Christ, then keep your eyes fixed in heaven. Uh, keep your eyes fixed on the things that are eternal, not, not temporal. Um, but do you not know that when we present ourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. The weight placed on us by our old masters of sin say that we must sacrifice, we must give up um, everything to keep up with the Joneses, right? Uh, But God is our greatest pleasure, and in him we find satisfaction. So whereas in these other, other motivations we can't find satisfaction, we find complete identity and fulfillment in him. And we are free from these desires that lead us to death. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, um, but that's a path that leads to destruction. Vanity is no longer the name of the game. Um, whereas my favorite book, Ecclesiastes, is just like vanity, vanity, vanity. Everything's vanity. Um, suddenly... Work has renewed purpose um, because now I don't obey my masters to get something from them because I already have an inheritance. Um, because though I was slave, I'm now and now I'm now my son. Uh, my inheritance isn't based off of my work. My inheritance is based off of the one who saved me. And since he saved me, that work is done. And so since Jesus' work is complete, I don't have to now work to earn something. Um, and since the temporal life is just uh, a temporal display of an eternal reality. I can actually work confidently in this temporal reality for what is eternally true. And what is eternally true? We've already said this, but I'll say it again. That Jesus, our King, has set us free from working to achieve something that we can't even have to have an inheritance that we could never earn. Yeah. So what motivates you to return to the office every day? You know, is it, is it these things that um, are going to pass away regardless of whether you show up at the office or not? Or are you going there with a renewed purpose that, oh, my God has called me to this place. My occupation doesn't determine my, my value. But God has determined my value when he died for me. You know what that value says? Priceless, right? He gave up the only thing that was uh, worthy of glory 
Jesus Christ, so that we might know glory. So, do you find your do you find yourself dissatisfied with the current status quo at your workplace or in your day to day life? Do you find like I can't find satisfaction here? Um, we'll stop looking for it because Christ has already said, completed your satisfaction. Um, so you don't need to change jobs. You don't need to um, find that perfect place where oh this boss he'll actually finally understand me. You know like. I've I've always I've often considered switching switching the way that I run my life so that I might find a little bit more pleasure. Um, but if I recognize that my master is not the man or woman who sits in a desk in Boston, but is actually uh, my king that didn't just didn't just rule from heaven, but made himself servant to all, so that I might be set free, then all of a sudden <laughs> I think I've said the same thing ten times. But all of a sudden I'm set free. Um, from this pattern of worldliness. So, how do you approach your work? There are many of us, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will show us the way? Um, Psalm 4 says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have with, than they have with all of their grain and all of their wine. Now in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Are you able to proclaim this today? Are you able to, to say that the Lord makes me dwell in safety? Do you find peace in your king? So Christians today, we are secure by the work of Christ. We don't need to pursue things that just that don't satisfy. We are free to not work for ourselves, and we are free to work for His name's sake. Um, those who don't, those those of you who do not know Jesus as your Savior, this is your chance to find something that will satisfy. Find something that doesn't just end with um, with dissatisfaction, because we all know. That there's, there's three things that unite us as humans. We're born, we're di- we die, uh, and that one day we will see God. Um, so when you see God, will you be excited to thank him for the, for the gift of life that he gave you? Or are you just going to be devastated over um, the dissatisfaction that, that, life left you, that life left you? Because the wisdom of Solomon is true. Um, that all these things are vanity. But in Christ... That nothing is nothing is vanity. So, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths and for your word that can actually express these truths to us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be continuing to convict us on uh, and and move us closer to knowing you. Uh, thank you that we get to rejoice that you fill us with joy. <laughs> And you fill us with your peace. And that we are safe in your arms. That we don't have to try to find the perfect, the perfect style of living. Um, that you've already lived the perfect life for us. Um, so Lord, today we lay down our lives. And we become slaves to you. Because we know you are good. Amen.